Okay, yeah, as soon as you're ready here. Okay, and guys with the clock, if you guys can get going. Okay, so here we go. So I, I, to get us going to the right place, here's what I want you to see. Okay, this is the question we're going after today. I think one of the most important and most difficult things in all of Christianity is truly knowing how much God loves us. Now, I want to just propose something to you, and I have sought my heart on this to say, is this true, or am I just saying something that feels true? But is it actually true? I can tell you that I came to the Lord when I was 19 years old. I'm now 63, so you do the math. I don't know how much it adds up to, but it's a very long time. And I can tell you that my life has been about every six months, I find a new place in the Lord, a new revelation of how much he loves me that causes me to love him more deeply. Some of you will remember something I did several years ago at a particularly glorious time of me discovering how much God loved me, and that was I brought Jeff Stevens up on the stage. Hi, Jeff. By the way, all of you who are, who are gone, welcome. I know, you know you're on vacation, but nice that you tuned in. Uh, but the point is, is I put Jeff Stevens up here on stage, and then I kissed his feet. <laughs> and I did that because I was, we were talking about the woman who brought in the perfume and, and her tears and her hair, and, and she kissed his feet. And I was, trying, I was trying to figure out a way to demonstrate, and the Lord had us there, about the love that she had for her Savior, the one who saved her her. And I thought, honestly, when I did that, I thought, I, I don't think I could ever love God any more than I love him right now. And that's after a lot of years of loving him a lot. But I got to tell you, I've looked at it since then, and I feel like I've entered into places in love with the, it, my understanding of his love for me. Now watch the flow here. My understanding of his love for me causes me to love him in whole new ways. And I have to say, I was just thinking about that. I was going, I didn't think I could ever love you more than that. And yet I do. In a marriage, this is the way God means it to be. It's not always this way. In fact, rarely is it actually this way, what God intended. But here's what God means for a marriage to be. You know when you first get together and you are in love, the, that, that love, you know what I'm talking about? And I mean, it is like the most awesome thing ever, right? You've never experienced anything better in your whole life. This is, your, this is the one that you're just head over heels. You've given your life over. This is it, right? And then you get married, and then things happen. And some of them are tough. And if you go through them the way that God intends... Each one of those is an opportunity. I'm serious about this. Each one of those is an opportunity to come to understand something about the other person in a way that you did not know them before. And that when you get to that place in your marriage, when you get past a difficult moment for on whatever level, right? It could be between the two of you, but it could be just a thing coming against you in general, you know, or finances or health or whatever. But when you get through those moments together, then what happens? You find a level of love that you look back at how great that love was, and you go, that was really great. But this just feels so much deeper, richer, more profound. This is what God is trying to do with every one of us. Now, with each other, it's two finite people 
you know, refining each other. Is that a nice way to put that? <laughs> you know, it's two diamonds that are having parts that aren't, don't belong knocked off. With God, the dynamic is completely different because he is infinite. We are finite. And the depths of his love is infinite. So what we get to do is, is just discover more and more and more and more. There is no end. The Christian walk is supposed to be filled with a never-ending, deeper love. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what it is. We have missionaries here today. The missionaries can tell you there's some stuff that happens on the field that is unbelievably difficult. But why won't any of them trade that for what they got out of it? Right? Like, I would, you're like, you know, I don't go through the difficult thing, but I don't get out of it what I got out of it. Nobody makes that trade. Because what I got out of it was so much better than what I went through. Right? This is what God means it to be. Falling in love with him deeper and deeper and deeper. So that's what we're going to look at today in a way that is just extraordinary as the Lord has been doing. So with that in mind, Becca Weber, who is just, don't get me wrong, my wife is here. I adore you. I love you. You are, you're just, uh. so would you pray for the sermon and would you pray for another church, please? God, we just thank you for the opportunity just to be in relationship with you. God, that you um, delight in being in relationship with us, God. And um, God, I just have it in my heart, God, that you, we just thank you for the good things that you do, but God, for the things that are so rough that you are with us as we're going through, God, for all the people who are going through hard things. God, we thank you that you make hard things into beautiful things. Amen. And we just ask that you would remind all of us, that you were there in the good and the bad. And God, I just ask that you would um, reveal something new about yourself to us today, God. Amen. And that you would do that, God, at Eastside Foursquare, God, that you would be with them in their message, God, that people would know that your presence is with them at all times. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, God, and we, um, we just thank you for a relationship with you. Amen. And lift up a church. Oh, you did? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. I thought I was paying attention. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. So, so those of you who go here regularly know that we are in a, I guess he called it a series. I don't know what to call it exactly. It's just that the Lord led us to do something, which was that we didn't quite really understand the New Testament. We didn't understand the depths of it, the profoundness in it, the real richness of it, because we didn't understand where it came from. We didn't understand the Old Testament and the grounding that that gives so that it becomes rivers of living water springing up in the new life all the time. So what we've been doing is taking particular, not all the stories, because it would take us years, and I've done that before, but we're not doing that this time. But we're taking the, the biggest stories that have to do with the, an understanding of the New Testament. Okay? So that's what we're doing. Now, you'll remember that it's, and we're to Exodus, so we're in the second book, and it's called Becoming His People. This journey of actually becoming his people, and that's going to make a lot of sense today as you do this. And Kevin kicked us off last week. But, but there's this theme that I've discovered. Now listen, I have studied the Bible, it was 20-some, 30-some years ago that I was in seminary. And I, you know, I didn't know what I'm about to talk about right now until a couple of months ago when we started doing Genesis. I just had never seen it. But think about this. This is a book, the Bible is, no other book in 
even remotely close to anything like this in all of religions. This is a book that is written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40-plus different people in 66 different books. So you would think that that would just be a story here and a story here and a story here and a story here, but it turns out it's not. Because what you have right at the very beginning in Genesis, the first three chapters, you have the laying out of all of the themes that will take place for the rest of the book, meaning God created things for a particular reason to be with us, but we fell. And now he's redeeming us and how he's redeeming us. That's laid out in the first three chapters of the book. If you were writing a novel, that's how you would write it. Well, God has written a novel. It's called the Bible. And as we read it, what we find is this thing where God has done. You would lay out the theme. If you were a novelist, you'd lay out the theme. And then you would work it out to its completion, which happens in Revelation. And what we've been seeing is deeper and deeper that as we get into Genesis and now as we get into Exodus, he's still laying out the themes ever more detailed, ever more deeply, but he's laying out how he's going to do this. And here's what I want to tell you today. 1,500 years ago, in my understanding, other people would argue this, and I think that they're, it's nonsense. And I can prove it to you scholastic and scholarly. But the bottom line is, 1,500 years ago, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, we call it, the first five books. And we know for certain that we have these books, no matter, even if you want to try and take them apart like some people do, we know for certain that all of Genesis, all of Exodus, what we're looking at today, was written way before there was a Jesus. And what we're going to see is God bringing his, making a people, becoming his people, bringing them into salvation in a way that is completely fulfilled by Jesus. I mean, we're going to see the depths of what we look at today prefigures Christ. Now listen, these stories hold together without, if there was never a Jesus, these stories still totally hold together about what God did to deliver his people from Egypt. They completely hold together. But what is mind-blowing is, when Jesus comes along, you realize that everything in these stories prefigures, looks forward to, points to, is fulfilled by Jesus. How could Moses do that? He didn't even know there was, he didn't, he didn't know Jesus. He hadn't seen him on the cross. He didn't know any of this. There's only one answer, explanation for this. God wrote it. God told Moses what to do. I'm not saying God wrote it, Moses wrote it, or his scribes wrote it. But the bottom line is, is that what we have is a, a proof in an extraordinary fashion that there is inspiration, that this is inspired by God. Because it's just, it's not like some things, like a horoscope, like it kind of fits. It fits in a detail and a degree that is, you cannot argue it. How did he get all of that? How did he know all of that? How did this all come true? And it's not just making it fit on this end. Because there's things like death that are hard to make work in your favor. And you'll see that this is all part of this unto Jesus. Do you get this? So here's where we are. Kevin started us off last week with that, the 10 plagues, but he left us at the 10th plague. He said, I'm leaving that for today because this is, there's a whole other thing that happens beginning with the 10th plague. Now think about it this way. What God has been doing is he's been escalating the plagues each time. First it's blood, 
and then it's, right, and then it's, and then it's, and then it's, and then it's. But the point is, is it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, why does God do that? There's lots of reasons for it, but let me give you one that's important for today. The reason why God keeps escalating the plagues is because when he gets to number 10, he's going to do something that is extremely difficult. He's going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, including their animals, all the firstborn males, every one of them, from the lowliest to the highest. That's an incredibly difficult thing. And what God is trying to say is as Moses, Pharaoh could have stopped it at any time. He's pointing out to us, listen to this, let's do it in the, in the, for Christ, but this is for the Jews too. Here's what he's saying. The cross has to happen. He's proving to us that the cross has to happen. You see that? Because he's saying, I gave you every other way to get around this. Every other way, but you couldn't get it. You couldn't get it right. Not just Pharaoh, you and me. And when we get to that place, then we understand why Jesus had to die. You see it? So let's do it, okay? All right. Moses, now this is the Moses talking to Pharaoh. So Moses announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I'll pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the oldest son of the lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has ever heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Now, I want to pause right here. You do remember in the plagues, or we haven't, I think it's the fourth plague, what starts happening is the first three or four are everybody, the whole land. But at about the fourth plague, he starts doing things in Egypt which do not happen in the part of Egypt that Israel is. How do you do that? You know, the magicians faked the first couple and tried to mimic them. But how do you start doing miracles like the one that happens number nine, where it gets so dark in Egypt that people can't see? We're not talking an eclipse here. We're not talking it was dusky. We're talking it was so dark that people couldn't move around, and yet in Israel it was light. These are extraordinary things that are taking place here. And this is what's happening here too. But here's the point. Here's the problem. The Egyptians are losing their firstborn because of their stubbornness, their refusal to repent. Now, it's located in Pharaoh, but it's the whole nation. God is judging them. And what happens is, the problem is, is that the Israelites are sinners too. So in this plague, we have to have another thing. In the other plagues, it was on the Egyptians, and then the Israelites just saw that didn't happen to them too. But here's the point. When he takes the firstborn, it's not fair for him to take the firstborn of Egypt and not of Israel because they're both sinners in their own ways. And that's why God institutes something on this 10th one that's different, the Passover. doesn't do that with any other plague, nothing like it. But on the 10th one, he says, something else has got to happen now. See it? All right. So, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all your followers with you, and only then will I go. So now, we've just talked about it. There has to be this Passover. Now we're going to look at the instructions that God gives to Moses about the Passover. 
this thing that causes the angel of death that goes through the land and kills the Egyptian firstborn, but passes over the Israelites. The Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. A young goat if you don't have enough money to have a lamb. Okay, so God understands that, and he's allowing you to do a different sacrifice. But the lamb is the sacrifice. It's just that if you don't have enough money, then that one points to that. One animal for each household. The animal you select must be one-year-old, male, no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly, the community of Israel, must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They're to take some of the blood, smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with better salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, I've said that this is filled with Jesus. I could do much more than what I'm about to do. I'm just taking the most obvious ones, but there are probably twice as many as what I'm going to show you right now in this passage that point to Christ, that are fulfilled by Christ. The first one is lamb, right? The lamb. Here's what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, understand something. John could have said the Lamb of God. That doesn't mean that it is. he is, right? So I want you to see something. John declares him to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But, but let's get to a place to where it's identified as the Lamb and it's not being said by somebody here on earth. I'm trying to maybe like sink it with Passover. Because when we get to Revelation, here's what John sees in the Spirit in heaven. Then I saw a how old lamb? One-year-old, young lamb. You see it? I saw a one-year-old, I saw a young lamb sitting in the middle of the throne, God's throne, and he's sitting on the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, he appeared to have slaughtered but was now alive. Think that's pointing to Jesus? Think that's fulfilled by Jesus? How about this? No defects. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus, who knew no sin, became with all the stuff that was due us. If you receive what he did for you, it goes on to him and he pays for it. You don't. Israel must slaughter their lamb. Think about that for a second. Who slaughters the lamb? It's not the nation of Israel. It's not the priests. It's you. Why? Because we're the ones that killed Jesus. All of us. We're the ones that put him on that cross with our sin. It's got to be over a fire. This is getting into some eschatology here, but how does the world end? The day of the Lord, Jesus, will come as unexpectedly as a thief. 
then the heavens will pass away with terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything and it will be found to deserve judgment. This is, <clears throat> in the world, it's popular to think of Jesus as tolerant Jesus. Love means tolerance. That's the way the modern world has defined love. Love means whatever I'm doing, tolerance. We don't understand something about God. God's love is deeper than tolerance. God's love is trying to help you and save you and bring you into something new. And there is a judgment in there. And he's that. Bitter. Why? Indeed, it's bitter that he had to die for us. It, there's all kinds of traditions. This is a really fun sermon I might do someday. There's all kinds of traditions that have built up around the modern Jewish expression of the Seder or the Passover meal. Okay? In the, modern, in the modern thing of this, it goes to a deeper place. Here's one of the reasons why you put the bitter, you take the bitter herb and then you sprinkle it on people for the tears. Here's another one. It's unbelievable. Now, the, the Jewish people came up with this. This isn't a Christian thing. You take three matzahs and put them in a bag. Three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> And you take one of them is hidden, completely hidden. You never get to see it. The hidden matzah. And what you do with the hidden matzah is you break it. <laughs> That's modern Jewish expression of the Passover meal. Pointing to Jesus, the Trinity and Jesus is being broken. Having said that, let's get back to this story because it's amazing enough on its own. Bread made without yeast. What's that talking about? Right? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and leaven. It goes throughout you and it leavens the whole lump. Sin leavens everything. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Un no sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See the direct connect? Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten. Because Jesus is totally consumed in sacrifice. He reserves nothing back. All of it is consumed in what he does for us in his sacrifice. All of him. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency. Why? Because we're to live as strangers in this land, in this life. We are in this world, but we're not of it anymore. Earnestly desiring to be with him as it will be in heaven. Live as a stranger, ready to go to a better place. Don't live and try and satisfy yourself here. Understand what awaits for eternity and be oriented to that. Live towards that. The, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you're staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God presented Jesus as a propitiation, a payment. That's, payment is too... But nobody knows what propitiation means anymore. But propitiation is this word that means the satisfaction of. The thing that needed to happen has been completely paid, completely satisfied. So he's the propitiation. And through our faith in his blood, as he's demonstrated his righteousness, because he who had no sin became sin for us, so he stands right before the Lord in obedience. Jesus does. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins of us that we committed. See it? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. What do we say as Christians all the time? What does the Bible say about the blood of Christ? 
it cleanses and covers. His blood spilled for you and me cleanses and covers. You know, this description about the Passover goes on. We've seen some pretty amazing fulfillment, right? But for seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. See, now watch. We're talking about themes. What he's saying is, look what he's just done right there. He's showed us salvation in Christ. Right there in that description of Passover, in the second book of the Bible, towards the very front of the book, he has just laid out for us the sacrificial lamb, Jesus and what he's going to do for us. But now there's another theme that he's introducing, and this theme is sin is really a definite problem, one that I had to die for and one that I want you to be serious about. And so what he says about the bread in the Passover thing that points to something different in Christ is, for seven days the bread you eat must be made out of yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. In the modern expression of Passover, the little kids, they hide yeast in the house, and the little kids run through the house trying to find even the smallest little piece of yeast. And what that's doing is saying, be vigilant about rooting out all sin in your life. You're not the one that can get rid of it, only Christ can. But what he's saying is, you don't ever get rid of it until you know it's there. If we don't know our own sin, if we're not serious about rooting it out, if we're not serious about finding it, then how does he get rid of it in us? Because we don't know that he's doing it. So we're not, you see? So he says, I remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast during the seven days of festival will be cut off from the queen of Israel because sin leaven kills us. It cuts us off from him and from others. We must root it out. Then the Lord said to Moses, because he'd killed the firstborn, he said, it's not fair if just that happens to the Egyptians. This is every firstborn male from now in every family, Gentile, Jewish, everything. Set apart for me the firstborn. Now you may redeem it back, you can pay money and redeem it back. They made a redemption to get back your firstborn son or to get back the firstborn animal, male animal, see? So he says, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. The firstborn belongs to me. There's the fulfillment of the firstborn, the one that belongs to God the Father. God the Son on the cross for you and me who becomes the firstborn. He is the firstborn of God in that God isn't created, but Jesus and Mary is. And so he is the firstborn, but he also becomes the firstborn for everybody that wants to be in Jesus' lineage now instead of the one from Adam and Eve. Got it? What do you think? Is this extraordinary? I mean, I think that this is mind-blowing, and it's going to get better. God says about all of this stuff that we're looking at today, I have planned this. 
See what he said? I orchestrated this. What I just told you, God inspired Moses what to do, knowing that it would be its own story for them at that period of time, but that it was also ultimately going to be filled in Jesus Christ in a way that fulfilled. A blood, an animal dying for me can never satisfy the sin I did. I'm a man. I'm a person. And only a person can die for another person. That's Christ, the person who's also the lamb. So what I want you to see is he's saying, I planned all of it to display my glory. Let me, let me rephrase that for you so that people would know who I am and what I'm doing. So that people would know who I am and what I'm doing. That'll become very important here in one second. I'll display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, now watch what he says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. But is that the only person that are learning about him? Because God was not just showing Pharaoh who he was, he was showing Israel too. In all of this, I need you to become a Jewish person at that period of time. And I want you to see something. If you're a Jewish person and you're a slave in Egypt, here's what you are as far as God is concerned. You have, this is all you have, some stories about God telling my dad or my great, 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 great grandfather that he was going to have a land somewhere else, Israel, someplace up north I've never been to. And he did it through Isaac and he did it through Jacob and then there's these 12 sons and I'm the descendant of one of these 12 sons, two to three million strong now. But what relationship with God have they had up until this point? Do you see it? Nothing, not really. They've heard stories being passed down about what makes them special. But honestly, if you're a Jewish person at that period of time and you're in slavery in Egypt and somebody comes to you and says, you've been chosen, what you've seen so far, your response to that being chosen is thanks but no thanks. If what cho being chosen means is me getting to be a slave in Egypt, thanks but no thanks. Why would I want that? You see what I'm saying? The Israelite people at this point in time, they don't have a relationship with God. They don't even know who he is for 430 years. He hasn't been talking to them. He hasn't been revealing himself. He hasn't been doing miracles amongst them. He hasn't been showing who he is. Now, in your heart, we can say that, yeah, of course he's been doing things. But do you see that what the issue is? We don't have, they don't have a Jesus on the cross. They don't even have, at that point in time, the plagues. They don't know who God is. You see it? So what's God doing in all of this? He's trying to make a people to be his people. He's taking these two to three million people and he's making them his. This is all God revealing himself as strongly, loudly, clearly, boldly as he possibly can. Do you how, how much louder could God have talked in those 10 plagues? <laughs> you think that was pretty loud? I think that was pretty loud. Pretty strong, pretty bold, pretty clear. He's trying to say, you don't know who I am, but I'm showing you who I am, and take a look. And I, I, think, I think the Jewish people were going, what the heck? <laughs> this is different. Wow. We'd heard about him before, but now we're seeing him? Wow. Right? But you know what the truth is? At the end of the plagues, as strong, loud, and clear as the ten plagues are, we ain't seen nothing yet. He hasn't made a people yet through those ten plagues. That's just something they've experienced. It certainly is indicating, it's certainly telling them to go a certain direction, but they're not there yet, are they? So here's what happens. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them through the main road that runs through the Philistine territory. There's a way to go from where they lived, right up essentially the coast, 
and they end up in the land. It's really close. Lots of trade routes right through there. Two main ones that are, would take two to three million people could handle that. God did not lead them along that road, though, that runs to the Philistine territory and eventually to Canaan, which is going to be Israel, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, now listen to what God said. If the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. I can paraphrase that. We can paraphrase it. They will change their minds and return to Egypt. Why? Because they still don't really know God. You see it? You see the problem he's dealing with? After the plagues, they still don't really know him. They're knowing something, but they still don't have a relationship with him such as to be completely and utterly committed unto him. They haven't become his people yet. Somebody's doing something for us, but they're not his people yet. So then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by two places that you can figure out how they're pronounced. And then camp there along the shore across from another place that you can figure out. But it's probably Baal Zephon. Okay? Now, this is what he's talking about. You see the route that they took? You see, I don't know if you can see this red dot here. But you see, they could have gone right up the coast here. There's Canaan right there. There's the Philistines. There's Canaan. Look, there's a trade route. You don't see it on this map. But there's a trade route here, and there's a trade route that goes south of the Dead Sea over here to get way over here. So the point is, they go there. But here's where they did, God where it does take them. By the geography, the, the Red Sea has changed its dimensions uh, in modern times. But the point is, at that point in time, and you can still go right to this place. And when you get to this place right here, you will see that this is a cul-de-sac. You see how it kind of juts? You see that? They go down into a place that's like the worst possible place they could be if an enemy was pursuing them. Because they're stuck. There's literally a mountain to the north of them. There's, there's, there's a block that goes south. And then there's the sea. <laughs> so if somebody's coming after you, you're blocked three ways. Completely blocked. Two to three million people are never getting out of there. So the Israelites camped there as they were told, do what God says. It may not make sense. Do what God says. Do what God says. When the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh, Pharaoh and his officers changed their minds. Gee, big surprise. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with all the rest of the chariots in Egypt. Chariots are an enormous advantage against a people that aren't warriors. So each with his own commander. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore. They are toasts now. Even at two to three million, they're going to be slaughtered. If you were God and you were trying to forge a people for you, your first problem is to get them to discover that despite all the miracles that you had done, their trust, their understanding, their hearts are not actually yet for you, right? The first thing you need them to know is, well, sure, we're willing to follow God as long as things are good. But put me in danger, I'm out. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Does this sound like a people that's trusting God? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptian. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. 
This is big stuff, right? These people are freaking. Now, Moses, Moses, Charlton Heston, Moses. Moses steps up, right? But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. You know, just stand still and watch the Lord rescue today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. That's the Charlton Heston Moses, who's got nothing to do with the actual Moses. Because here's what the, extra, the actual Moses did next, which is hilarious. He said to the people, stay calm. And then he turned around and talked to God to where God had to say to him, why are you crying out to me? <laughs> why are you freaking? I told you what was going to happen. What's, what's up? You don't trust either? Yeah. 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 None of us do. Do you get it? None of us do. Even the Charlton Heston doesn't. <laughs> right? Because there is no Charlton Heston. God is forging a people in the fire. Turns out Moses is one of them. Moses is just like us. Right? That's who he actually is, just like everybody else. So to us. From this moment on, I've told you you need to put yourself in their shoes. I really need to put yourself in their shoes right now in order to get what God wants to do with us right now. I need you to be an Israelite in that moment with. You've seen the 10 plagues, and you've gone out here, and now you're freaking out. I want you to be freaked out by the fact that you're just about to be slaughtered. And now I want you to see the God who's going to forge you people. Because even after the plagues, here's what he does. First thing, then the angel of the Lord who had been leading the people of Israel, I didn't read that scripture, but I am now. But the point is, is as they left, God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now that's a pretty cool thing. You want to know what God's leading you to? It'd be nice to have a pillar of cloud and a fire, right? I'll follow that. Now here's what we say, I'll follow that. We, here's what we really believe in our hearts. I'll follow that. If there was a cloud and a fire, I'd follow that. Here's the truth. We won't follow anything. We won't follow anything but our fear and what our heart tells us. And our heart is weak and all over the map. That's what we follow. We freak out. But if all of a sudden you saw that fire, the pillar of cloud moved from the front around behind them and then that cloud settled between the Egyptian and the Israelite camps and as darkness fell the cloud turned to fire lighting up the night so that the Egyptians and the Israelites could not approach each other what would you think at that moment in time see now watch in the plagues they're they're observing yes it's happening but they're all they're kind of observers of what God is doing they have suddenly become participants because now there's an army that's about to wipe them out and all of a sudden this cloud goes around and stops them from doing that. You see it? Now what are you thinking about God? Wow. Like he's got me better and more than I thought. Right? And then it gets better. That's a pretty good revelation there, right there, right? That's a pretty good revelation of who God is. But it gets better. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land. Now you're sitting there watching an army behind you being kept back by a pillar of cloud and a fire. And then you're looking forward and all of a sudden there's this wind that is, that is causing a sea to stand up in walls. 
I don't know about you, but I'm saying that's a really good revelation. <laughs> I thought I was toast, and God has made a way in a way that I could have never understood. Do we all get the obvious sermon here? God made a way, and I thought it was impossible. But I obeyed him, and I went into the cul-de-sac, and then he showed me who he really was. No, no, no. This is our word early this morning. You nailed it. It happens all the time in this church. <coughs> you totally preached the sermon about trusting him. Right? Got to trust him. Got to do what he says. Got to obey him. Okay? Really good revelation of him. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Push the, push the ocean back. Push the sea back. So that it's like up to my knees or maybe my ankles. So that I can walk through and not be like scared. Instead, God has the water to stand up like walls. Anybody ever seen that before? I, I really, I'm going to show this to you and I need you to experience it. And because it's Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, it's going to look pretty hokey. We have much better CGI. Somebody out there, of all you guys that can do this stuff, make me a better wall of water, okay? All right? I'm serious. I need this. Okay? But let's just do the Charlton Heston one because, you know, it's, oddly enough, it kind of stands up. And what I mean by that is it gives you a sense of the fear. We don't see it that way, do we? But think about the fear of walking through walls of water. There's some serious need of CGI there. I just didn't do the sound because I think that even takes you out of the moment more. But two to three million people now entering into. And by the way, where the water was at that point in time is not, that's not a horrible representation. But look at this. What are you going to think? What are you thinking right now? I need you to be walking through walls of water that could collapse and kill you in a heartbeat, and yet you're trusting God and walking on dry land. I need you to be experiencing this. And here's why. Because this is what God used to finally get him to trust him, to finally get him to know who he actually is. Mine's officially blown when you walk through that water. Isn't it? Right? And then there's this little cleanup here. Could God possibly be communicating more strongly, more loudly, more clearly? When you're walking through that water at which you could perish in an instant, and you're seeing it stand up, do you see how strongly, loudly, boldly, clearly God is communicating? Then all of the Egyptians, all the pharaohs, horses, chariots, and charioteers, they chase them in the middle of the sea. Uh, S-E-A. As the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back to its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept, swept them into the ocean. The entire army of Pharaoh. Now, wait a minute. Who is this again? You're in Israel at that point in time. Those people that were going to slaughter you, right on your tail, those people... All the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, 
They were filled with awe before him. Now listen. And this is when they finally put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see it? God had to take them through something. Now, remember something. This whole time when we're looking at the Old Testament, we're looking at its fulfillment, how it prefigures, points to, looks at Jesus, and how Jesus fulfills it so quickly. Watch this. I want you to see again, just like we do with the Passover meal, I want you to see Christ in every element of this thing. Because watch, they descended into the depths. What happens in Jesus? He's died and buried, and when we join him, we're died and buried. They miraculously walk through the sea, through the depths. We miraculously walk through death. Jesus walked through it, and when we're in him, we walk through it in him. They rise up on the other side of the sea. What do we do at the end of baptism? We're, we're dunked, cleansed, die, cleansed, come back up again. The sin is paid for, we're cleansed, and then we come back up again, right? We rise up on the other side of death. He rises up, and in him, when we're in him, we do. We're de they're delivered from their enemy, Egypt. We're delivered from our enemy, death and sin. Their relationship with God, the relationship with God, they finally understand. They finally get who he is, and they enter into a relationship with him. In fact, as was said in the, in the great videos that we run, they, they do the first worship song ever right after this happens. It's the first time that they ever worship. You worship the one that you know. Otherwise, it's just a song. We come into an intimate relationship with God when we're made again, born again. They're made a new nation. We're made new beings. They become a people now, his people. They've become his people. So too we, when we're born again, we become his people. And really cool, they cannot go back. There's no enemy and there's a sea and it's not going to open up again. They can't go back. And guess what? You who think your salvation depends upon you, eternally held by him. You are held by him. Even in your failure. You think your failure separates you from him? No, you're on the other side with him. There's an issue and he's going to work on it. But it doesn't separate you. To the contrary, he's got you. So here is God not only communicating strongly, loudly, boldly, clearly to the Israelites, but also, and watch this, in a way that can only be seen by us, understood by us who have lived after Jesus. See, much of what we've talked about today can only be understood on the other side of Christ. Everything points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. Everything. Do you see this? It's not just that he's going to pass over. It's that he's going to take you down. He's going to, he's, you're going in him. You're going to die to all of that sin and death. And you're going to rise up again as a new person. Do you see this? The whole of the New Testament has just been taught us in the 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. The whole of the gospel has just been preached to us. Extraordinary, isn't it? So what is God trying to tell us strongly, loudly, boldly, and clearly? Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> right? Hold on to that for a second. Because there's always something deeper. 
I told you, infinite God, finite people, infinite God. If you look at him, no matter what revelation you have, if you look again, this is why, the, why you can read the Bible over and over, and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. It's not like you read it once and I know the novel. It's a dynamic living thing, and you get to understanding it more deeply and more deeply and more deeply and more deeply and more deeply. We have to be readers of the Word and let it get inside of us so that it can do this thing in us. Otherwise, we are unmoored, and in our New Testament, in our understanding of the gospel, which is not moored to the truth and what God has done, it becomes all over the map, which is what's happening right now in our culture and the reason why we're doing this series. People are able to take the New Testament and make it into something that it clearly is not. There is a thing that it is, and it's more profound than anybody has ever thought from the world side. And it just keeps getting more and more and more profound as you go after the Word, who is Christ, but is also incarnated and incarnated in that Bible. So here's the deeper. Look what I will, I have, done for you. There's people here that have had experiences with the Lord where he didn't meet what you wanted him to meet, and because the squeaky wheel gets the grease, because of our human nature, the times when God didn't do what we wanted him to do become the times that define God for us. I need you to erase the times that God didn't do what you thought, understanding that the fat lady hasn't sung, and there may be more that God's doing there, okay? But the bottom line is, I need you to look at the things that God has done in your life. I need you to look at the plagues and the miracles and the deliverances and the things that he has done. And if nothing else, look at salvation itself and the massive, glorious, miraculous change that came about in your life as you accepted him, right? But understand that he is the God of those plagues. And he is the God who does the cloud to protect you. And he is the God that makes a way through the sea. And he is the God that takes you down into the depths of death and brings you back up again alive and new. This is the God that he is. We have to come to understand that. But you have to understand why he does that. Why? Why does he do that? Because he loves us. I'm going to show you something here. here. Here's a scripture about this. Is Julie here? Good. You are, honey. Come on up. For God has proved his love. See what he's saying? He's proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as the sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything he has to give. Do you see it? It's his love. But I need you to see something here. I need you to see the difference between trust and love. Two quick stories. Number one, I'm 28, I think. My dad, that makes him around 50, I'm going to say 53. I'm probably a little, old, little younger than that then because he was 20. Anyway, doing the math, he's in his early 50s. I'm just going to say 53 for the story's sake. We're on a vacation. The whole family, about half of us have girls in our lives that we're going to marry, a little more than half. But there's five boys, and there's my parents. And we're on this just, you know, once-in-a-lifetime incredible vacation. And we're sitting in this foreign country uh, in this beautiful hotel upstairs on the roof where there's a pool. And back then, that was an unusual thing. And we're sitting in this gorgeous setting. And my dad, and we're doing a devotional in the morning because that's what we do when we get together as a family. We do devotionals in the morning. 
And my dad's doing this particular devotional, and he says something to us. He says, I'm 53 years old, and I can tell you that the testimony of my life is that God has provided for me so much greater than I could have ever imagined that I am astounded at how much he has provided for me every single day of my 53 years. And yet I'm scared to death about tomorrow. That's trust. Here's the point about trust, Julie. Here's the point about trust. We just don't. It's not actually about trust. If you put, if you put your emphasis on trust, you put your emphasis on the wrong syllable. What you got to do, thank you, honey. What you got to do is get, I'm going to put you on this side. What you got to do is get to a place of love. Here's what happens when something difficult happens to you and you're in love. Whatever differences there were between you, they dissipate in the face of the challenge, don't they? Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you're in love, right? When you're in love, when difficulties come, you bond, don't you? You become one, right? You go through this together. And when you get to the other side, that's where you go, oh my God, you're so much more than I even thought. And I thought pretty well. But I've discovered a whole other layer to you that was of a help in a crucial period of time. This is love. When love is the motivating factor, when a bad thing comes at you, you don't run from it. You don't say this is bad. You join with him who you love, God. Right? But I want you to see something else. See? It goes all the way to here. See? When, when, when something is coming at me, I don't care about me anymore. When somebody's coming at, excuse me, when something's coming at us, I don't care about me anymore, do I? When you're really in love, how many of you, if your spouse got a fatal disease, wouldn't trade places with them in a heartbeat? Do you see? Mm -hmm. What happens to you becomes unimportant. What happens to the other person is what's all important. You see it? This is what love does. Love doesn't, love doesn't process it anymore as, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't want this to happen. Love processes it in an entirely different fashion. It gives up completely of its own in order to pour itself out for the other. Now, if that other happens to be God, and Julie is a pretty good stand-in, then aren't you putting yourself in the right place? The one who's bigger than plagues? Who can part Red Seas? Do you see it? Our trust has to be built on love. Our relationship has to be built on love. Love is the thing that draws us together. Thank, Thank you. you. Amen. I'm done, but at this point in time, because this is so important, I, I wanted to do something to help make it stick. And usually I would ask us to do some sort of meditative moment. I'd like to just spend some time with the Lord and Pam do the guitar and all that kind of stuff. I didn't ask for that this time, and here's why. It occurred to me when I was writing the sermon that something happened this last week that fits this sermon really well. Because what have we been talking about the whole time? God speaking 
strongly, loudly, remember that word, God speaking loudly, boldly, and clearly. And I want to say something to you. I didn't want it to be a quiet moment with the Lord. All of a sudden, I realized that there was something that just happened this last 4th of July that's loud and strong and bold and clear. And all of a sudden, I realized something, which is I want you to have a meditative moment as you watch. I'm a connoisseur of fireworks. I realize some people are not. And I'm begging your indulgence right now, but if you'll enter into this moment as a meditative exercise, this is one of those things you can do in religion where you can take something and you can be thinking about God as you're processing it, and it helps you see him in a new way because it's a new way of encountering him. And what I want us to do is the granddaddy, the best best fireworks show every year around the world is New York City. And I'm going to show you New York City's fireworks show, just parts of it. It's only two minutes long. It'll seem like a long time, but it's only two minutes. Okay? But here's what I want you to do. I'm serious about this. Every time you hear a boom, I want you to hear God saying, I love you. I love you. I love, 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 love you. Love you. Love, 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 love you. Love, 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 love you. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Every time you hear a boom, I want you to not only hear God saying, I love you, but displaying himself in glory as he pours himself out for you and to you. You see it? I want you to enter into this moment as a meditative exercise. big, 
powerful, unexpected. You saw fireworks that you haven't seen before, didn't you? Unexpected things. And always grander and bigger and more. As much as you think you know, there's always more. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you. Lift, reach down in front of you and grab these two cups. Lord, we are suddenly brought to a recognition, a revelation that we have thought of you too small, that we have not understood you in the grandeur, the infiniteness that you are. And in that we realize that we've been putting our trust and our love in something less than what's true. So what we do is we reorient right now. We recognize, Lord God, by putting our finger in here and cracking it, we recognize that we have known a God smaller than you are and so loved smaller and that we have in that stolen from ourselves. We've broken our lives in ways that you meant more fullness to be in. And so recognizing that, we lift these cups, and I want you to look through the cup to the cross where the cross heals all. By his stripes we are healed. That brokenness is not just healed, but it's redeemed. Knowing the way that we have loved you that was less than and coming into the more, we suddenly realize how much more beautiful the more is. And we set this as a goal now for the rest of our lives. That every six months, we should come to know you so much better, so much deeper, so much more beautifully. That we are yet again struck to a new level of your love for us. Responding ourselves in love to you. So we take this cup to be healed and brought into that. Thank you, Lord. And now we lift up this cup in which is the life that you have for us. It's already been purchased. It's just waiting, literally in the garage, waiting for us to take it out. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this cup now knowing that you've already given it to us. And we say to you when we take this cup, I want to be joined with you in this. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, this is the most spectacular time to say yes to him. Take this cup for your first time, saying, I want to be joined to that Jesus, to that God. He'll take you from there. At the end, go back to the, go back to the left-hand part of the thing, and there's going to be a stand there, and somebody will give you a Bible. But take this moment to take this cup together with those who do know him and are refreshing themselves in this. And so we take this cup together saying in Jesus' holy and precious name, I want the life that you have for me. Thank you, Lord.